This morning, we're going to look at a frightening reality, one that strikes fear deeply into most human hearts. We're going to discuss conflict and how God himself makes us brave in the face of conflict. Uh, let's pray briefly. Father, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your spirit that guides us into all truth. May you bless our time this morning that we might learn and discover how to be brave in the face of a frightening reality. We give you this time in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to look at a passage in scripture today. Ephesians 4, uh, beginning in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This letter to the Ephesians was most likely written as a letter to be circulated among the churches in and around Ephesus. Ephesus would have been found in what is now Western Turkey. Of all the Christian churches in the area, the church in Ephesus would have been the largest and the most influential. These churches were a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers, and as a result experienced an ongoing lack of unity and oneness as these two people groups struggled to live in peace and harmony with one another. This message to the Ephesians could not be more relevant today. At a time when we're seeing racial tensions in our own neighborhoods explode onto the front pages of the news worldwide, at a time where we are witnessing hostilities that are dividing entire nations into terrorists and terrorized, at a time when Europe is becoming divided into two distinct groups, citizens and refugees. At a time when well-known churches with celebrity pastors are closing their doors and selling off their assets because of scandalous conflict. At a time when marriages and families are dissolving like no other time in history, at a time when friendships end in suspicion and resentment, the message of Ephesians could not speak more clearly into the realities of the conflicts facing us. Our conflicts are frightening, but the message in Ephesians makes us brave, but only when we believe it. When we believe the message of Ephesians, we put our trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. We come to know and believe that we are united with God himself and with one another through what Christ did for us at the cross. 
Now, the first three chapters of Ephesians leading into this passage are rich with theology. Leading up to this passage that we're going to look at today, Paul has heavily emphasized the theme of love and how love is expressed in the form of unity. Of the 107 total times that Paul mentions the concept of love in his writings, 19 of these 107 times occurs in this letter, this short letter to the Ephesians. In today's passage, we see that the Apostle Paul is urging Christ's followers to live a life worthy of the calling they have received. What is that calling? What is your calling? In Ephesians 2, Paul has already explained that Jesus himself is our peace. By his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has created unity. He has created one group of people where there had originally been two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, two groups who have historically been at odds with one another. How did Jesus create this one group? What Jesus did for us was to make it possible for sinful human beings to become reconciled with the sinless, holy God. For all who become reconciled with God, they become members of one group, God's own family. Being reconciled to God happens when we put our faith in what Christ has done for us. In other words, this one group has been made one family by believing the gospel, the good news that at the cross, Jesus has taken our punishment, the punishment we deserve for being a sinner, and has made it possible for us to take the perfect righteousness of Christ. See, only the perfectly righteous can become children of God. And when we believe and accept what Christ has done for us, the judge of the universe declares us perfectly righteous. The gavel descends, and a judgment of eternally forgiven, eternally accepted, and eternally loved is rendered. Even while we temporarily struggle in this lifetime with failure and frailties, our status has now changed from enemy of God to child of God. Our faith in Christ has united us with the perfect God, and as a result, we spend eternity with our Father. See, believing the gospel changes everything. Believing the gospel makes us brave. After all, if God our Father is for us, who can be against us? Now, as members of the family of the living God, the Holy One, the majestic, all-powerful, almighty God, we now receive a new calling to live into what it means to be his son or daughter. Our calling is to live a life worthy of the name that we are now known by. Our calling is to strive to keep the bond of peace that Jesus himself has established with what he did for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Ephesians says he brought down the dividing wall of hostility between people and made us one. And our response we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Not just a half-hearted effort, not just some effort, 
Not a little effort, but every effort. Our calling as children of God is to strive for peace and unity in the face of conflict. Now, how many of you today are presently locked in a painful conflict? How many of you have unreconciled relationships that are anything but loving and peaceful? Now, how are we to live it out, this calling, especially in the face of frightening conflict? Let us first consider uh, this question, what is conflict? There are many definitions of conflict. The Chinese, most of us know, use two symbols for the word conflict, the symbol representing crisis and the symbol representing opportunity. I like to think of conflict as the result of conflicting desires. In James 4.1, James, the brother of Jesus, asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And then he answers his question with another question. Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Conflict, regardless of who it involves, is always the result of our own battling desires. As a counselor uh, for nearly 20 years, 17 of those working in the field of reconciliation, people would come to my office and I would ask, what, what's the problem with, what's the source of your conflict? And he would point this way and she would point that way. But James says the source of our conflict is our own hearts, the desires that battle within us. So what does conflict look like? You can see here that two people wanted the same thing. Their desire is for that one spot at the toll booth, uh, which brought them into conflict with one another. Conflict arises when competing desires clash with one another. Sometimes the clash is a mere fender bender. But sometimes the conflict can be deadly to a relationship, to a church, to a community, to a nation. There is a lot of confusion when it comes to dealing with conflict. Let's consider a couple of important terms to define if we're going to learn how to live out our calling to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. One of my students sent me this picture. Over his summer break, he broke his arm. And I thought it was a fascinating picture. Sometimes on the inside, the damage is so profound, but it doesn't look so bad on the outside. Conflict is like that broken bone. A relationship breaks. Reconciliation is the work of setting the bone. But reconciliation often isn't enough. The greater the damage, the deeper the injury, the more profound the pain and harm um, often calls for a period of time called restoration, where trust is rebuilt, respect and closeness. That restoration efforts are only possible once reconciliation has come about. That restoration process is like time in the cast to heal the bone. But let's consider more deeply what it means to reconcile conflict. 
If reconciliation is like setting a broken bone, how do we do it? How do we take a broken relationship and set it right? The recipe for reconciliation includes three ingredients, repentance, confession, and forgiveness. I'm going to unpack these three ingredients in a couple of minutes because most of us do not have a strong biblical understanding of what repentance is or how to confess or what it means to truly forgive. Yet reconciliation will never happen until both parties in conflict practice those three important realities. In my ministry of reconciliation, I can honestly say I can't think of anything more beautiful than seeing people in conflict reconcile. So this morning, out of curiosity, I googled stories of reconciliation, and I received over 33 million hits. Stories of reconciliation grip our attention. In fact, people are powerfully drawn to stories of reconciliation, and they should be. The greatest story ever told was the story of reconciliation between God and humanity. Max Anders, founder of the Seven Marks Resource Group and creator of the Brave New Discipleship Program, states that reconciliation is the establishment of harmony and peace between enemies. Enemies are said to be reconciled when their hostility ceases and mutual love binds them together. One of the reconciliation stories that really caught my interest was the story of retired United States Air Force Brigadier General Dan Cherry, who searched for and became friends with a North Vietnamese pilot by the name of Lieutenant Nguyen Hong Mai. On a visit to an Air Force museum in 2004, Cherry discovered the retired F-4 Phantom aircraft he himself was flying when he shot down a MiG-21 during an aerial battle in 1972 over North Vietnam. Cherry, seeing that the pilot had ejected before his burning plane crashed to the ground, began a search for that pilot of the MiG-21 uh, that he shot down in April 1972. He went on to later write a book called uh, My Enemy, My Friend, and recounts his search and his discovery of Lieutenant Hong Mai and their emotional face-to-face meeting and visit in Ho Chi Minh City, 37 years after he shot him down. Now this story, this book goes on to tell how these two military men have deeply reconciled on both sides of a conflict. They have developed a friendship, their families know one another, and they want their story to go on to set an example of how even two nations in conflict can reconcile. Let's look a little more closely at the ingredients of reconciliation. Repentance is a great word, but sadly it has fallen on hard times. We rarely call each other to repentance. When was the last time someone said, you better repent? Because the word itself seems unloving. But repentance is a necessary ingredient to being able to keep the unity of the Spirit. We see in the message in Ephesians that Paul instructs the reader to cling to certain character qualities that are essential for reconciliation to occur. What did we read in Ephesians 4, 2? Be completely humble and gentle. 
be patient, bearing with one another in love. Humility, gentleness, patience, and persevering in love are absolutely necessary for any one of us to repent and own our part in a conflict. They're also necessary quality, qualities for us to be able to confess or to forgive. Reconciliation is only possible with that humility, gentleness, patience, and commitment to love. But what is repentance? Repentance was Jesus' first official word when his ministry began after his temptations in the desert. First recorded word in scripture in Matthew 3, 2. Repentance is defined as a gift from God in 2 Timothy 2. It's expressed as an internal change of heart that is revealed in external behavior change. Luke 3. It's often accompanied with sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7. But it's a lifestyle that we as believers are called to live. A lifestyle of repentance. Repentance requires us to see and understand how we have fallen short. And sometimes it's that quiet ping of truth that says, I blew it. I did wrong. So let's look more closely at one of the bravest acts that we are called in making every effort to live at peace. What is confession? Confession is verbalizing the things we have just repented of, the things we have just figured out, the things we've just begun to see and recognize as our fault. It's specifically owning our parts in the conflict. Now, most of us in this room have been taught that an apology is the highest form of handling our sins against another person. An apology is simply an expression of sorrow for hurting someone. It's the I'm sorry, and it, it's a part of a confession, but by itself, it generally does more harm than good. A full confession is different than an apology. In fact, most of us in this room have been taught to make insincere, hypocritical confessions, and we have taught our own children the same. Tell me if this rings a bell. You tell your sister you're sorry right now or you're going to your room. Sorry. Okay, you can go out and play. We teach insincerity, hypocrisy, and we reward it. But a confession is not an apology, and it's not insincere. In fact, confessions are very healing. We're instructed in the book of James to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed. A passage in one of the most well-known psalms reminds us of the healing power of confession. When I kept silent, this is David speaking, after his sin with Bathsheba and having her husband murdered. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Have you ever felt totally drained, totally as if the heat of summer were pressing in on you? Sometimes that unconfessed guilt, unconfessed sin, unconfessed repentance is a heavy weight to carry. 
Confession brings life to a dying relationship and a drying up soul. Just this past week, I was working with an organization in conflict, and one of the key parties was extraordinarily angry until he made a confession of his own sin. Once he did, his countenance changed, and he actually looked joyful, something he had not felt in over three years. How do we make a healing confession? I highly re recommend to you a book written by a man named Ken Sandy. Uh, the book is called The Peacemaker, and it lays out a biblical understanding of how to think about and respond to conflict. But Ken has developed a helpful guide called The Seven A's of Confession. These seven principles of confession include address everyone involved. Our confessions should involve everyone who has been impacted by our sin. I was once coaching this man who ran a software uh, support team, and he had yelled at his secretary in front of several of his employees. And he called and said, Judy, I really blew it. I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I think you're going to have to confess. He said, yeah, I know I really did the wrong thing to her. I said, in front of the whole team. And he goes, no, 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 you see, I really just sinned against her. And I said, well, how many watched what you did? Well, about four. How many people are on your team? About 19. I said, how long do you think it took for the four to inform the other 19? He said, probably about two and a half minutes. I said, really believe you're going to need to make your confession as widely as the sin is known. And he did. And that team went on to be uh, highly cohesive and very effective in their role. Avoid if, but, and maybe. Three words that wipe out a confession. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. That's not being sorry. I'm sorry, but you were a little cranky, you know, leading up to this. And if you hadn't have been so difficult, I'm sure I wouldn't have done what I did. Wipes out a confession. I am sorry, but maybe if you would have whatever. Avoid the words if, but, and maybe. Take responsibility. Admit specifically what you did. I'm sorry. What are you sorry for? Um, the thing I said. What did you say? Um, something somewhere around dinner time about the meal. You don't even know what you said. Admit specifically, and sometimes we need help knowing exactly what we've done. Acknowledge the hurt. I know that hurt you, and I'm sorry. See, that's the apology piece. It's so important in the midst of a full confession. Accept the consequences. Sometimes there are no consequences, and sometimes there are consequences, and the consequences can be severe. I once worked with a couple um, recovering from adultery, and the woman had had an affair during the daytime with a neighbor uh, while her husband was at work. She confessed she wanted to reconcile. They worked hard to reconcile, and about three months in, she came to my office angry, and she said, you've got to make him stop. And I said, well, what's he doing? Well, he calls me like four or five times a day. I said, well, what does he say? Hi, honey. How's your day? What you doing? Can I bring anything home? I said, so 
he's calling you, and that's driving you crazy. She said, yes, all he's doing is checking on me to see what I, where I am and what, what I'm doing. Well, one of the consequences of not being where you say you'll be, doing what you say you're doing, is to rebuild trust. When trust is broken, rebuilding trust is a necessary consequence. So accept the consequences with that humble, gentle, patient heart. Alter your behavior. Change the way you're acting. And ask for forgiveness. One of the hardest questions is to ask, will you forgive me? Now, I want to look at one of the most difficult challenges in keeping the bond of peace. There's a lot of disagreement over what forgiveness is. Even our biblical scholars disagree with each other, and sometimes they disagree with themselves in what forgiveness is. In fact, I think it's going to be one of the most heated discussions in the evangelical world in the next decade. What is forgiveness? How do we practice it? To better understand what forgiveness is, let's think first what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not excusing sin. I often ask people who say to me, Judy, I forgave my father for what he did, my husband for what he did, my sister for what she did, and I ask the question, why did you forgive? And they said, well, she was having a really rough time, and she was really exhausted, and her child had been sick, and I, I say, you actually haven't forgiven. And she says, no, I did. I remember I wrote her a letter and told her I forgave her. I said, forgiveness is not based on anything in the human realm. We don't forgive because they had a bad day. That's excusing sin. And many believers intend to forgive, want to forgive, try to forgive, and think they have forgiven. But in reality, they have excused sin. God never excused sin. I know because I read the Bible looking for an excuse. I thought I'd find it. Uh, Judy, on the basis of this, this, and this, you're excused from your sin, but it isn't there. Instead, forgiveness is there. Forgiveness is not ignoring the hurt. In fact, sometimes we can't ignore what the other person's doing. It would be unloving to ignore their behavior. Forgiveness is not preventing justice. It is unloving to prevent appropriate, legitimate consequences in people's lives. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness isn't the same as reconciliation or restor restoration of a relationship. Forgiveness is an active choice to release the offender from the debt that they truly owe us. See, if anyone hurts you, they actually owe you a true debt. They owe you. Forgiveness is paying their debt for them out of grace out of gratitude for God's forgiveness in Christ. See, no one ever forgave anyone because somebody deserved it or earned it. If they deserved it or earned it, it's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is a radical gift of grace, and we only forgive when we realize that in Christ all our sins are forgiven. In Christ all your sins are forgiven. For some of you, you're so wealthy in forgiveness, you're the Bill Gates spiritually. 
For others, you're still wealthy in grace because you've inherited everything, eternal life, a place in God's family, the kingdom of God. We can only ever forgive when we recognize the wealth we have received in grace through Christ. Forgiveness is hard, it's painful, and it's costly. In God's math on forgiveness, the offender pays nothing and the offended pays twice. See, God was the offended party when we were his enemy, and he paid by being offended, and he paid through forgiveness. The offender goes free. And forgive, uh, forgiving is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. It's also an act of love. Forgiveness covers a multitude of sins. It's an act of obedience because we're commanded in Scripture to be like God, and there's no way we're more like God than when we're forgiving. It's transformative. It unlocks us from a prison of bitterness. But that's not the reason we forgive. We don't forgive so that we are benefited. We forgive because God has forgiven us. If you go to the bookstore, you're going to see shelves of self-help books and even in the Christian section about forgiveness. Many of those books have a, a, an unbiblical message. If you forgive, your acne will clear up, your cortisol levels in your blood will drop and you will lose weight and your blood pressure will come down and you're going to just overall have a better outlook on life. You're going to feel good and you're going to look better. That is not why we forgive. Will that happen? Might. But the reason we forgive is out of gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. Forgiving is a covenantal promise. It's making a promise to the person who's hurt us, a promise in light of what God has done for us. It's a promise. And I'm going to unpack what that sounds like in just a moment. It's also an internal act that takes place in the heart. See, forgiving is applying the truth of the gospel in the midst of conflict and pain. It's an act of courage. And it's one that we requires bravery that can only come through Christ and what he has done for us. It's making a promise to the one who hurts you, regardless of whether or not they have changed. Regardless. Now, it is a wonderful thing when people repent of their sin. But even if they don't, we're called to forgive. So it's making a promise to yourself. You're promising yourself that you're going to guard your heart by refusing to chew on the offense and emphasizing, reminding yourself of how much you're forgiven in Christ. It's a promise to the other person that you're going to guard their hearts by recognizing the appropriate consequences, allowing that to take place, and reminding them that they're forgiven. It's a promise to everyone else in the family, in the community, in the church, that you're going to guard their hearts by refusing to gossip about the person who sinned against you and encouraging others to forgive you when that's needed. And finally, it's a promise for us that we're going to guard the relationship by refusing to hurt or shame the person who's hurt us and encouraging them in love. Conflict is frightening. Conflict is hard. And for some of you, 
It's the most painful thing you will have ever experienced in your life. But I want to give one final thought for you as we end our discussion for the day. Marshall Goldsmith, in his book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, said, forgiving is the act of abandoning all hope for a better past. Forgiveness is one of the ways, critical ways, that we keep the bond of peace. It's only through repentance, confession, and forgiveness that we have any hope of living out our calling as sons and daughters of the living God. It's only as both parties in conflict sincerely own their part, saddened at how they've contributed to that dividing wall of hostility that Jesus has already dealt with. It's seeking and offering forgiveness so that the bond of peace can be maintained. Conflict is frightening, but Jesus makes us brave. He makes us brave because he has given us all that we need and all that we could ever want. He has given us himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in providing your word. Thank you for your message in Ephesians that we are yours. We're in your family. We belong to you. And because of that, we are in a family with one another. Lord, where hostilities and prejudices and resentments and hatreds grow, grant us your grace that we might repent, confess, forgive, and pursue that closeness of relationship. And may this church that is a light on a hill to this community continue to blaze bright with the good news that you love us and you have forgiven us all our sins and we have eternity to be with you. We just, I just pray your blessings on each person here. May you uh, work your truth into their hearts and minds for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.